Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy. Speak and Destroy is the podcast featuring interviews about Metallica. And I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Tony Borge, co-founder and guitarist of legendary trio Budgie, a huge influence on the new wave of British heavy metal and, of course, on Metallica. You may not know Tony, but you know his riffs. Bread Fan and Crash Course and Brain Surgery are both Budgie songs. Metallica, Iron Maiden, Soundgarden, and Megadeth have all covered different Budgie classics over the years. Van Halen, in their club days, used to open their shows with In For The Kill, the title track from Budgie's fourth album. Fledgling solo artist Ozzy Osbourne, just fresh out of Black Sabbath, toured with Budgie. Judas Priest were an opening act. In this wide-ranging and lovely conversation, Tony tells me all about the early days of the formation of the band, their songwriting process, their influence on other bands, recording at the legendary Rockfield Studios in Rockfield, Wales. Budgie made several records there, and in the 1970s, Black Sabbath, Motorhead, Priest, Queen, Rush, and Hawkwind were just a few of the artists to come through that studio. In the 80s, Adam and the Ants, one of my favorite groups of all time, Bauhaus, The Damned, The Cult, Iggy Pop, Robert Plant, Modern English, The Stone Roses. The 90s saw Oasis, Paradise Lost, Sepultura, Him, Coldplay, an incredible place, and Budgie was right there, central to that legendary studio's story. In late 2020, Tony released his memoir, Rocking Man, with an axe to grind, co-written with Chris Pike. The book is accompanied by a CD featuring 10 tracks written and recorded by Tony, six from his 2013 and 2014 digital releases remastered by his son, Kingsley and four that were previously unreleased. If you check the show notes, you can get a link to pick up Tony's book and that record. And I'll tell you, a real treat in this episode is when Tony put on his guitar and played the riffs from Bread Fan and Crash Course and Brain Surgery. Don't forget you can support Speaking Destroy on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes exclusively available there, called for my interview archives, conversations from over the years with folks like Glenn Danzig, Kirk Hammett, and Randy Blythe from Lamb of God. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. So here it is, my conversation with Tony Borge of Budgie. This is Speak and Destroy. genesis of this podcast was that I found myself as a professional journalist and someone who works in the music industry behind the scenes a little bit, often having conversations about Metallica. They seem to be the, the glue that would connect all sorts of different people of different generations, backgrounds, lifestyles, where they're sort of the universal language of, uh, of rock fans in a way. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to turn these conversations that are happening anyway into a podcast? And so in, in doing so, 
I've had folks who've worked with the band, toured with the band, um, been influenced by the band, uh, you know, all across the spectrum come on as guests. Uh, the episode we just put up this morning, uh, features Dave Lombardo, uh, from Slayer and a huge part of Metallica and their significance in my mind is the way that they have exposed so many of us to so many other great bands. And that's almost like a singular thing with them, you know, in, in the pantheon of rock that for as gigantic and massive as they are, they, you know, I have a Misfits tattoo and I discovered the Misfits because Metallica wore Misfits t-shirts, you know, before they'd even covered them. Uh, and it's thanks to them, you know, that I, that I love bands like Budgie and Diamond Head and all the new wave of British heavy metal stuff. I had Brian Tatler from Diamond Head on the show. I had Animal from Anti-Nowhere League. Um, just spoke to John Gallagher from Raven a little while back. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Bread Fan is one of my favorite songs ever, your version <laughs> and theirs. And uh, the Garage Days cassette, believe it or not, was actually the first Metallica music that I ever owned. That was the current release when I was a teenager uh, was, was all these covers. So I got to know the band and those songs that way, you know, before I had even heard a note of their original songs. So that's just sort of, I just want to give you some context of kind of where the, uh, where the anchor is with the conversations. Um, so let's talk about a, a little bit about the formation of Budgie and, how, you know, cast your mind back to how it kind of first came together and, you know, bring me to that sort of pivotal moment uh, where Radio Luxembourg started playing you and how that really kind of helped launch the band, as I understand it. Well, as I remember rightly, going back many years ago, um, I teamed up with Burke, who I met um, while I was uh, looking to buy an electric guitar, my first one. And... Um, I knew a couple of instrumentals. Uh, I never bothered with chords or anything like that. I was into blues stuff, you know, just playing bits of lead. And um, <clears throat> I went to a friend of mine um, who plays guitar, and uh, I heard that he was selling an old Hofner with humbuckers on. So I went up there to have a word with him to see about buying it. And um, while I was there, um, he said, oh, can you just hang on a minute? I got this guy inside who wants to have a chat with me, which was Burke. Mm. I didn't know that at the time. And um, I said, oh, all right, okay, I'll, I'll wait here. And then he was having a chat with Burke, and then I heard him say a few things, and then I caught the gist of the conversation. And basically, um, he was asking um, Peter Morley, uh, the chap that I knew, mm -hmm. that was selling the guitar. He was asking him if he wanted to join the band. So Burke was looking for a, a lead guitarist. And he conveyed to him that uh, he wasn't interested in joining the band. He was gonna, he wanted to form his own band and do his own thing, you know, which was uh, going around the clubs and it. And um, anyway, he, he said, but uh, he said, there's a guy here who's buying my guitar off me. And he said, I've seen him play. He seems to know what he's doing on the guitar. I'll try, try him out, you know. So I went in the room. Then or he invited me in the room. I had a chat to Burke and found out that we were interested in the same sort of music. Although I was into blues stuff, I was quite aware of, uh, you know, Rolling Stones mm. and the Beatles stuff. And I quite liked um, the Beatles because of their melodies. 
but I like the Rolling Stones because they had a rawness about them, the way they attacked their instruments. So I was a bit sort of mixed up in my head in exactly what I wanted to do, you know, getting into a band. And of course, both and, of those uh, bands were very I, famously influenced by the blues too. So, you know, you're loving blues and, well, you know, blues. If you, if you go, I think if you go back in the history, the history of bands, most rock bands, uh, you're going to find out that um, as you go along the line, you know, the influences. I mean, I found out later on as the years went by that um, the person that I admired most, uh, you know, people like uh, Eric Clapton and Peter Green at the time when I was a youngster. And um, it was only later on that I found out that the instrumentals that I was playing were written by um, uh, Freddie King, <laughs> which I had never heard of. You know, <laughs> yeah. You have to imagine that uh, when the Stones came along, um, they were playing blues stuff, like a heavy rock band would mm -hmm. play it, attacking the guitars, slightly overdriven. And uh, nobody had ever seen anything like that in their lives before. It was all, you know, pop music, nice rhythm guitars and that, you know. And um, nobody had ever really at attacked their instruments, you know, and attacked the, the singing in the, in the form that they did. There was something revolutionary about it, much like when rock and roll first came out, you mm -hmm. know. And, and they looked at Elvis Presley shaking his legs on stage and stuff, <laughs> you know. And you look at his interviews and when he talked, but as years went by, you know, it everything everything has to extreme, no matter what it is through history. Yeah. And the bands get louder and they get more complicated. Um, then they go back to their roots and they mm. play simple things, but all the time they're developing their style of music. And I, and I think I think Metallica, when they heard Budgie, they heard something that that they probably had in their minds to go down that road anyway. And I think um, I think I read in a book once, you know, uh, um, by a, one of your great um, philosophers, <laughs> Emerson. He said in his book, "It's not by chance you're reading this book." Mm. Well, it's it's not by chance bands become rock bands. It's because they look around, they see what the the history is, what the music is, yeah. and all of a sudden something smacks them in the, in the head, and they think, "Oh, God, I've got that. We got to get some of that." And it don't matter whether it's playing rugby or tennis or whatever. But once it gets old, you grip gets a grip on you. You just got to go with the flow, mm -hmm. you know, and do, do what you love doing. I love that. I love your anecdote about the instrumentals that you were playing based on, you know, Clapton and Peter Green, and then not really being aware of of the origin point and that they were sort of your gateway to that music because it's exactly, mm -hmm. you know, as I'm what I'm describing to you about my own journey and hearing songs like Crash Course and Brain Surgery and thinking of them as Metallica songs, more or less, only to then, you know, later go back and discover Budgie and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it's kind of beautiful how that continues to play forward and forward, that you can always reverse yeah. engineer things and take them apart. So you were, um, I, I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, especially back in the early days, was um, recording at Rockfield Studios, which... We of course now know as a very famous place and a very uh, beautiful uh, location in Wales. Um, what was it I'll like? Cover the back. Cover the background on that for you. Yeah. Um, there's uh, the two brothers, Kingsley and Charles Ward, that uh, formed the um, uh, Rockfield Studios. Uh, Kingsley was in a band 
and that's how he got to know people like Dave Edmonds. And then Dave went up to the farm when they had an eight track put in there and they were fiddling around recording. And then all of a sudden that grew. And Dave Edmonds was playing around a lot in South Wales and all, all over Britain and the continent and was making a bit of a name for himself. And we'd heard about the studios and we'd also heard that um, about Black Sabbath this is once we got going as a rock band. Mm-hmm. And we'd done all the clubs in South Wales, the usual thing. You go around doing the nightclubs, you build up, you know, you start writing your own stuff, which is what we got into. Uh, you suffer a little bit for that at the beginning because people are always asking you to play something in, you know, from an album or something in the charts or whatever. So most bands have to go through that. It, that's a barrier you have to you have to get across, you know. Um, so when we heard about um, Black Sabbath, um, we thought, well, you know, and we'd been listening to Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and we thought, well, we're on this road anyway, because we'd been at practice and we were starting to write those types of uh, songs and that type of music, and using those type of guitar songs. And um, we thought, oh, well, we we know Kingsley, we've met him, but we've never thought about recording there. So um, I think we phoned him up the one day, and he said, oh, he had a chap going there to... Uh, to have a look at bands, um, you can pop up if you like and and, and do a demo for him, mm. see what he thinks of you. So we said, oh yeah, okay, all right, we'll do that. So that's what we did. We went up to Rockfield and we played, and Roger Bain listened to us, and um, he was working with Black Sabbath at the time, and uh, he said, oh, I'll get back to you and, and see what we can sort out, you know. So basically, that's how that started. That's how we met him because he'd been to um, Rockfield Studios and worked uh, there with uh, Kingsley Ward and a couple of the engineers that he had there at the time. Mm. Um, he got he phoned us back up and said, um, we'd like to sign you up because they were a production company. He was he was part of a production company and that was it was called Hummingbird. And basically what happened there was um, he was working for um, Essex Music. And uh, there was a group of uh, inside Essex Music that formed a company and they called themselves a production company and they were called Hummingbird. So he was part of that. And the idea was they would go around the country looking for bands, sign them up, and then they would sell that band then to the record companies, mm. which is what, what they did. They, they got us a contract with MCA. Um, sadly enough, we... We ended up uh, separated from them. Uh, personally, myself, I think we should have stayed with them. But apart from that, um, Roger, you know, organised a contract to be signed with them. Uh, and then we went into Rockfield Studios about uh, oh, maybe about seven or eight months after we'd met him to do the first album. And, uh, of course, we'd been writing our own material and playing it at gigs. And uh, I think uh, I, I told a few people the story there is we used to introduce some of our numbers as, as um, some of the rock bands that were uh, had albums out. And we'd say, oh, this is a uh, this is a new track off the new Led Zeppelin album. <laughs> 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 and we just play our, our own song because if you said, uh, oh, we're going to play one of our own songs now, you know, you could, might get halfway through it and they go, oh, go play something out of the charts. <laughs> <laughs> you get a load of heckling or whatever. But they sort of uh, they they sort of go, 
oh yeah, well, that's not their new album. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's so amazing. we got it. <laughs> it's amazing. We had a bit of cheek doing it, i got to be honest. But, uh, yeah. but it's the sort of thing you do to get on. So that's what we did, you know. We yeah. did whatever we had to do to get on. That's sort of the the opposite of Metallica when their their first few shows, I think they played more, you know, as many Diamond Head songs as they did Metallica songs. And they didn't necessarily tell the crowd, hey, this is a cover song. They just sort of <laughs> played it all, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, like you said, you do what you, you got to do. That. You'd have to meet the Welsh people to understand why we did that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Um, yeah, and when I think about Rockfield, I mean, just as a as a lifelong rock music fan, I mean, you know, uh, I think about in the 90s, uh, Oasis and, you know, obviously it was a big one, Stone Roses, uh, a lot of great rock, you know, Coldplay, him i mean so, so many bands but then especially you know for me the 70s and the 80s um when i think about the 80s i think about the damned and the cult and adam and the ants and a lot of that stuff and then of course you know sabbath budgie uh priest who were you know budgie's opening act at one point back in the day uh motorhead um wh what do you think it was about uh, rush queen uh, what do you think it was about that that place it's sort of magic it's vibe that um resulted in so many important bands making music era? there well that that what particular that particular studio even rockfield like that that environment like why did how, how did so many of those legendary bands end up at that one studio well i think if they if they saw and heard it, you know from the magazines or papers write-ups you know hmm. about bands that recorded there because um I'm not sure which album it was. I don't know if it was our second album or third album that we did there. And um, uh, Queen were in one of their new studios that they'd opened up with a 32-track uh, digital desk mm -hmm. that recorded everything that they were doing. And uh, it, it's not like, you know, you, you know yourself from years ago, if you're fiddling around recording something and you go away and somebody's altered it, you come back and you say, oh, Christ, you're <laughs> fiddling around with this. Mm -hmm. You know, we lost the song, no? We're gonna, we don't get that back. We won't have a number one hit. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a bit like that. But um, the new 32 digital uh, desk that they had put in, um, we, said to, we said to the Ward brothers, uh, oh, what are you charging for that? And it was, I mean, the, it was extravagant, the price they were asking. So we thought, oh, we, no, we won't bother with that. We'll stick with the 16 track, <laughs> you know, the, the ones with the sliders and everything. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, we did get to see them going back and forth. And then when they weren't recording, um, we said to Kingsley, oh, can we go over and have a look at it? And he said, yeah, sure. So we went over there and had a look at it. And I can understand why a lot of bands went there then to uh, to record. is because um, not only did the, the desk uh, uh, digitally record, all the mixes. Um, if you if you save that as you can do with a computer, it saved it, and then they could fiddle around altering the mix, do a mm. copy of it or whatever, and and fiddle around do, doing a, a remix, and then they could say no, no, go, let's go back to the original and listen to that something that they thought that they liked that that was the best. Sometimes what you do you think is the best, and your your ears are not quite there, you know. So you put that on one side, and then you try it again in different form. Um, a lot of bands do that where they go and remix albums and things, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's why quite a lot of bands went there because at that point in time, 
I think that desk was quite revolutionary. It was, uh, I mean, for Kingsley and Charles Ward, it was the big knees, you know. It was like a, it was like a, a, a seven, a triple seven X plane had just landed in their studio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> come well, one, come all. Everyone, everyone wants to at least come and see it. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's great. So, you know, going back to, um, you know, that second album, which is Squawk, which was also made there. Um, what do you remember about that, uh, particular era of the band in terms of, you know, was there a sense having done the first record of, of what you liked and what you didn't like and what you wanted to emphasize with the second one, or was it more a matter of, okay, we have enough songs for a second album. Now let's go make it. No, I think, um, yeah, I, I think what you're seeing there, basically that does happen to most bands where you, yeah. you I, I, when we did the first album, I mean, we, we knew the songs when we did that album so well, we went in the studio and I think we did all the backing tracks in one day, something mm. ridiculous. Then I went out and I played lead or whatever, you know, and, and then Burke went out and done the singing and then it was mixed. I think we had the whole album done in five days. It, wow. cost, about four, it cost about £450 to record, you know, which then was quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But most of the bands that were going there recording, they were spending about, you know, two, two and a half grand. Wow. So, it's it's always amazing I mean, to me was, how how quickly some of these great <laughs> records were. You know, the first Sabbath record I think was, was recorded in a day and mixed in in a day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you know yourself from talking. To, I know I know I I've looked at some of your uh, interviews on online when, when um, Chrissy told me that you were interested in having a chat. Show oh, cool. That, you know, I thought oh, so I I went and had a look and I thought you know and if I'm feel good about complimenting you that the the nice thing about what you're doing is which I really like is that you're creating and uh, you're making programs um, and recording because a lot of people when they look back on some of the bands and they'll say well oh, what made them so famous well you know what were they like you know well the thing is is you've got interviews and mm-hmm. I know you You've interviewed some of the film stars, uh, quite a lot of the bands that, um, you know, couldn't possibly name them all, but I went through a few. And I thought, well, I'd be really interested to do an interview with you. And that what we're talking about now is, is really nice, you know. Oh, that's and the amazing. book that Chrissy Pike wrote, you know, yeah. covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And it, it's nice, you know. What I love about that is... I love music, even though, I mean, I'm I'm 72 years of age, but my boys are here now, and we're still recording and playing. And yeah. I just can't, I can't walk away from that. It would be like cutting my right arm off. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I, I'm not really, I like the idea of being on stage, and I loved it when I was in a band. But the one thing I loved more than anything else was playing guitars, making guitars, Using using sounds, listening to new guitarists that come along with ideas, and when you talk about certain guitarists that come along, what I call it innovators, they 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 see beyond what everyone else is doing, and then mm. all of a sudden everybody looks at them and think, oh Christ, you know what? We got to do a bit of that, mm-hmm. or we get left behind. Mm. And there's certain people, you know yourself, there's certain sure. people that have come along, Clapton, Peter yeah. Green, Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen, uh, rest in peace, America. Yeah. America yeah. tuned into it all, 
and yeah. thought, you know, what are we missing out on? Yeah, the, the, this is great. We've got to get some of these bands going, some sound. And all of a sudden, you've got bands coming out, you know, Eddie Van Halen, mm-hmm. Metallica. And uh, then I'm sitting back, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I remember what I did, but I've really got to get into this. <laughs> so I'm looking at their guitar playing, their style, the shredding, you know, finger tapping. And I'm looking at all the new things that they're doing, and I'm just wowing it all and thinking, oh, I've got to get some of this. <laughs> so I'm plugging my guitar in. I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn, you know, from from them. And that they're looking at, they're probably looking in, uh, at a book. Maybe they might read the book of the Chrissy Dunn or whatever. They might see your program, and they'll think, um, you know, oh, there was a bit, of, there's a bit of history there, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is it in, in a couple of years' time, all the interviews that you've done with them. That's going to go. It's all going to go down in the in the history books of a Brock, mm. and whenever it goes to, they'll always be a part of it, and it's uh, it, it's really, you know, it's really great. Oh, that's so. That that is the. I mean, that <laughs> for, after the rough year of 2020, that is such an amazing way for me to kick off this year. Is, is for you to pay me that massive of a compliment because that is exactly the the aim. That's my hope that this is uh, becoming part of the. Um, the counting and measuring the the recording, so to speak, of the history of this stuff, and and where all these bands intersected with one another, and how that resulted in so many things, and you know all the all the branches from the tree, as it were. So thank you, and that, that's yeah. that's exactly exactly what I want to do. Um, and given that, and I'm going to definitely in the intro to the show point people to the great book. Um, and there's so much history to cover. I would love to, if you'll indulge me, get into some of the better known of your songs and and talk about the genesis, the origin of, of the tracks themselves. Um, Bread Fan, of course, uh, I remember first hearing that as the B-side to a Metallica single. And just that riff, um, you know, and the, the band, I think, has opened shows with the song before uh just when that riff comes in when it just starts by itself it's just so invigorating you know it has a lot of attack to it but it's but it's also sort of upbeat in a way like it just gets you going and makes you want to drive faster or run faster or lift heavier weights or whatever it is you're doing (laughs) this is one of those kind of kind of riffs um what can you tell me about the the origin of bread fan and how that track came together well, we used to go to um, uh, uh, an old hut in, a, you know, just outside Cardiff, you know, which is, I suppose, about maybe two miles just outside in the countryside. And there was a small village there and um, a few houses. And then they had a little sort of village hut, if you like, with steel uh, roof with really old brickwork back from the end of the last world war, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was quite rough in there, but they had a little you know, canteen place where you could make a cup of tea. But myself, Burke and Ray, um, and at the, when we first started, uh, Brian as well, uh, we, we used to go up to the hall, set our gear up, and there was nobody else around. And the nice thing about doing that is that um, if you're just jamming and, you know, really laying into your guitar and doing whatever it is you want to do, I mean, Burke would be playing bass riffs I might pick up on them and then um, I might even add a few notes or, or a slightly different rhythm and he'd pick up on it. So 
as it, as time went by, Burke and myself began to tune into each other. Um, um, the riff thing started from that, you know, just basically plugging in and blasting away. Um, I think when you're practicing or having a go or picking up riffs that other bands have done, that's where the history thing comes into any band. Mm. You, you, you know, you, you you look at what you admire and you start to fiddle around with it. Then you put your own, your own, you know, tap on it, if you like, and taking out of it what you want. Um, I think Burke used to play some really nice, heavy riffs on his bass. And then I would join in or I might pick up my guitar and I'd start fiddling around with the type of notes that they used on some of the um, uh, the soul music, you know, where you get those bass things where they go, and once you get into those things and they're driving, and then you suddenly, you know, other people join in, Ray would join in on the drums, and we get something going, and we might slightly alter it, and all of a sudden we're playing something that, uh, just over the top of that, just beyond it. And you think, oh, I wonder if we could put some lyrics to that, you know. And Burke would be excited. He'd say, well, yeah, no, I'll go and we'll work on that. And then we'd go to practice and we might get through a verse then jamming on it. And um, Burke would fumble with the singing to start off with. But then after a while, all of a sudden, you've got two or three numbers we're jamming on. And we're, in, we're playing those more than we're actually practicing the set hmm. that we're supposed to do when we go to the clubs in the night. Because we're doing people stuff, we're doing a bit of blue stuff, but it's all stuff that's been, you know, recorded so the yeah. people's music, you know. Well, basically, that's how that came about, and I think the one day we went to practice, and Burke and I just looked at each other and say, "What's that? What's that thing we were doing the other day? Come on, let's go for that," you know. You know, and I always say, if you can sing it, you can play it. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is so, that is a very singable riff. <laughs> well, sometimes I'd say to Burke, you know, I'd say, I got an idea for, for, for this riff. And he'd say, well, what is it? And I'd go, and he'd go, yeah, Tom, I see what you're saying, but, you know, you have to wait till we get the practice, mate, because I really don't know what you're on about. Because <laughs> I'd be singing it, you know. Yeah. But in my head, in my head, I'd, I'd have my amp sound, you yeah. know, and I'd know what exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and I think he was the same with his bass. He'd often say to me, oh, I got this idea for a riff. Ding, 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 ding. And I'd go, oh, all right, Burke, all right, well, you know, wait till we get a practice. I, mean, <laughs> I, did. I used to, sometimes I'd be thinking to myself, I wonder if you've been drinking. Because <laughs> you, you, when you talk to each other and you, and you talk like that, it's like I'm talking to you now. Yeah. If I say, yeah. oh, I've got a great idea for a song, and I sang it to you, you'd think, yeah, all right, Tim. Uh. <laughs> Trying to urge, it, trying to figure in, out what it's, it's all going to. It's in gonna, your head, isn't it? Yeah, yeah or it's. But, I, I would imagine filmmakers too when they're trying to explain what a shot's going to look like or how something's storyboarded or, you know, that filmmaker is seeing it in their mind with the score playing and all of the visual effects finished and you know all of that. But when they're trying to explain it to another person and it's in their head, it just probably yeah. sounds like n nothing near as compelling. Yeah, I once uh, I was talking to somebody one day and I said to them once about, you know, trying to describe something if you wanted a, a song you could do. And they said to me, well, the thing is, Tony, I can't climb inside your head because I don't know what it is you're exactly thinking about. And I said, well, 
I know, but I'm explaining it to you. And they say, well, look, look, think about this now, right? Can you tell, she, and I forget what one of the guys in the band, they said, can you tell me what you look like? And I hmm. said, well, well, you're looking at me, you can see what I look like. Hmm. And they say, yeah, but can you tell me what you look like? Do you really know what you look like? Because you're not looking at your face, you never see your face. And I, and I sort of, I thought, yeah, there's a meaning there somewhere in that, you know. Hmm. And it's, it's like, you can see in your head what you want. Yeah. And if you try to describe that to somebody, they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And sometimes... They might have a slim idea. And sometimes the art of it is that, you know, let's say a song sounds a certain way in your head and then it, it's translated through your fingers and comes out into the world. That song also then becomes how the other That's person it hears alive, it, you know? you know, yeah. But even your own experience with something is going to be different than the than the person who created it. You know, we're, you, you, it becomes its own thing, and we all have our own relationship to it. Yeah, I think that's one of the. It's like things. when I first heard Metallica, and I thought, I thought, my God, I can't believe how fast they're playing the, the notes and stopping. <laughs> and because everyone used to talk about bands being tight when they were rock bands, and yeah, sure, you know. Um, Bands like Argent and, you know, in, in my earlier days, the bands I used to listen to. And I used to think, oh, yeah, they're tight. But I never, the first time I heard Metallica, I thought, Christ, you know, how did they get that tight? <laughs> I mean, they were really, you know, uh, really, you know, shredding the notes and stopping, yeah. shredding, stopping. And I thought, Christ, how was he doing that? You know, I spent the ages sat down trying to do similar things. And I thought to myself, I just can't, I can't climb inside his head, I, you know. I'm trying, but I can't quite get there. It's, it's, I'll have to do what I want to do. Don't do it the way I want to do. Um, for instance, techniques in playing. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you look at Manstein, the way he plays guitar, mm. um, it, he plecks every note. He's shredding yeah. and plecking every note. You know? yeah. And then you get people like Van Halen, you know, and he, he's got that, that fast flicking going on. Yeah. He's shredding the notes. And I thought to myself, if you just use that, you know, and you spare him with it, it's going to sound great. But if you mm. do a whole number like that, it's, it's like anything else, you know, it's going to get a bit boring. So you've got to, yeah. to, you've got to use it. I agree. And when you get bands, when you get bands come along like Metallica or Van Halen, and they, they learn to do those things, and they spare him with it, and they use it, and they know what they're doing. It's not like somebody sits down and thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to play like that. <laughs> You've got to know how to use it and, and milk it. You know, yeah, I, I, love, I love how with Eddie Van Halen, uh, you know, one of the things I remember that was most striking about the band to me from the very beginning of, of hearing them was how few chords there are in the songs, you know, guitar-wise, because you've got obviously the incredible rhythm section, Michael Anthony and Alex Van Halen holding it down, and it seemed like Eddie was just sort of gliding around uh just sort of dancing over top of what they were doing as opposed to like you know a really tight crunchy rhythm guitar part and i always thought that that was so key to their sound um how much personality came across and what he did i think the first time i saw him playing i suddenly uh, looked at him doing the finger tapping and i thought my god you know Musically, he seems to know exactly what he's doing. I mean, when I first started playing, and, and even up to the second album that we did, 
I didn't really understand musically what we were doing. I, I liked what we were doing and I had a feel for it. And uh, um, as a lot of early bands do. But as you get on and you get a bit older and, and you're doing more albums and you suddenly you sit down, you think, i got to learn what it is I'm bloody playing because I, you know, I've got to learn to describe these things I'm playing so I can make mental notes in my head of what mm -hmm. I'm doing. Um, it's not about jamming all the time, you know. So, so now I, I develop what they call pattern playing. So I was doing runs. And I called them patterns, but I didn't realize I was playing scales. Mm. And I was mixing scales. I didn't realize I was doing that. I, when I started to learn about scale playing, you know, the music side of it, and I suddenly realized what it was I was doing. I thought, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a you know, diminished run there. What's, why am I doing that? I just like the sound of it, so I played it. Yeah, and it's and one it, of those things it, where if you had studied it beforehand and tried to execute something that you were studying, it wouldn't have been yeah. as cool as as naturally finding it or it finding well, you. Sometimes, if you do it accidentally, it's there's something pleasing about it and something loving about it because yeah. you just do it and you do it naturally, and that's the thing about bands when they come out. That's why they're different. Is because they do what they do and they do it naturally, and that you can't you can't give that to somebody. I mean, you can say to another band or oh, copy this song, and yeah. I, you can go away. I mean, I, I did some Led Zeppelin numbers, but I didn't really feel what it was that I was playing. I enjoyed playing it, and I felt it to a certain degree, but it wasn't my baby, you know. It mm -hmm. wasn't. It wasn't me. But when I started to write stuff with Burke and you nurture it and then you get some riffs going and some simple chords and, and then you think, oh, well, that's lovely, that is. And you like it because of that. Not because you sat down and you said, all oh, right, well, well, I'm going to do a C major run there and I'm going to go into <laughs> a relative minor and uh, you know, I'm going to play and go into F sharp there. And, you know, and you think, all oh, right, you know, and then you do all that and it don't, it don't mean anything. It's just, it's just practicing. It's, you're running through things, and but when you pick up your instrument and you just blank yourself up and just play something, and all of a sudden what you want to play, what you're trying to play, starts to come out, and you might fumble a bit at first, but then you think, oh yeah, no, I want that run there, I want those notes, or oh, like that one I missed, that, that's a bum note, but it sounds great, and you suddenly somebody says to you, you know, oh you're playing a flattened fifth there, but musically it's okay, you can do that, and then you suddenly think. Well, I always thought that that was the wrong note, but I liked it so much I played it. So yeah. it's a bit like yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah, and I always, I always say that, uh, you know, the best bands are really a combination of things that have come before, but usually, but, but you know, combined in a way that things that have never been put together and then translated through the prism of the life experience, the geography the interpersonal chemistry of that particular group. So everything has sort of its building blocks, but it's always a new structure because it's, you know, being erected by new people. So but like, you know, you, you know, when you're doing your interviews, Ryan, I mean, you, you would have listened. I know there's certain things that I know that you would have done because of the quality of what you're doing and why you do it is, is simply because you must have listened like, like I might have listened to, um, you know, Radio Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. You must have listened to, to uh, guys on the radio narrating 
interviewing bands. Absolutely. Or, and you, you would have sat back and thought, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I just can't have a go at that. You mm-hmm. know? And if you go down to the foundation of what it is you're actually doing, I mean, at the moment, right now, we're talking about history and the music of it. And that's what it is. You've got a love for music. And in your own way, it's almost like you're, you're one of the gullies. You're one of the musicians. You, you're there with, with us and you're interviewing us and you're talking about what we do. We're talking about what I, do, I did mm-hmm. now. And, and, what and I'm, and I'm doing people. currently. Yeah. 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 And, it, and you're, in other words, you're part of all the bands you've interviewed. You might not think that because, like I said, you know, you can't see who you are. Yeah. Other people can see it, you know. So when you're doing these interviews and talking about music, you know, analyzing, you know, where it comes from, the musicians, you know, the musicians over the years, you know, I used to watch all the old movies on a Saturday afternoon, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, you know. I used to love Cole Porter's music, Mm. you know, Nacking Cole and uh, the melodies they used to come up with. And it was, I just, you know, even now when I look back, if those films come on the television and they're flickering because they're so old, I just got to sit and watch them. I can't mm. take my eyes off them. Especially if there's good music and they've got nice melodies, you know. I watched, uh, I don't know how many times I've seen Singing in the Rain. Mm. Oh, Great movie. Yeah, yeah, of course. But the music, the music. Yeah. It's brilliant. You know? I love Cole Porter I mean, also. Yeah, I, I got exposed to Cole Porter uh, later in life, I, I mean, in my 20s, I guess, um, I actually was on assignment. I was in the UK and I was doing, uh, well, I was, I was there basically for something else. And I had an opportunity to interview Robbie Williams, who was trying to get into films. And he had a, a small part in a film. So long story short, in preparing for that Robbie Williams interview, the film he was in was a Kevin Klein movie about Cole Porter. So I ended up you know, in doing my homework, doing all this research into Cole Porter, and then all of a sudden becoming a, a Cole Porter fan, which, you oh, know, well. would, wouldn't have happened otherwise had I not had that sort of, you know, sideways uh, entry into Cole Porter's music. And then, you know, his whole life story and everything's fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I the melody came up. I think it's very profound what you said also, because I realized you know, I quote a good friend of mine all the time who says, um, never trust anyone in the music business who didn't try to start a band first. And <laughs> I find that to be uh, pretty, uh, pretty sage wisdom about 99 times yeah. out of a hundred. And I, you know, and I, I played in bands and covered songs and all that sort of thing as, as a kid. And something that I realized with the career that I eventually would embark upon is that this was an opportunity uh, as great as being in a band is, you're generally yeah. in two or three bands, maybe through the course of a of a career. Whereas doing what I'm doing, I get to have conversations with you know hundreds of musicians over the years. So I look at that as the uh, the, the one of the big upsides is is getting to learn so much from such a diverse. Group oh, of I, I envy you in a way because I, I would love to have been sat by the side of you while you were doing all those interviews because anything to do with the music industry I, I just I just love to listen to or to watch on the television or listen on the radio yeah. I often put the radio on and just listen to you know some of the shows that are on there playing uh, you know playing classical stuff as well yeah I was um, 
I was telling Chrissy Pike once, um, I was driving along in my car and I'd put the classical um, station on. And um, I thought, oh, it's, all of a sudden this classical piece came on. I think it's uh, Puccini, I think it was, or Paganini, one of the two. And it was um, La Campanella, it was called. That's all I remember. And it was the third movement. There's a violin piece in there. And they came in and he said, oh, we're now going, I said, I'm now going to play you a piece of uh, uh, music that can only be played by a, a few people in the world. He said, so I hope you'll enjoy it. And then he said what it was. And I thought, oh, oh what's he going to play now? So, well, I heard this guy playing the violin and I was just absolutely wiped out. I, I had to pull over in my car and, and mm. stop and listen to it because it was like listening to it was like listening to um, the first time I'd heard Jimi Hendrix play the guitar, or the first time you, I, I'd heard Van Halen or somebody. I thought to myself, "My God, you know, you, musically, what he was playing, you couldn't write it. It was he was playing too fast and too slow, and and doing things with the violin I'd never heard anybody play on that. Mm. And it's uh, and it was the third movement in La Campanella. I'll have to check that out and it, after we talk. And it, and the, <laughs> There's, there's a famous um, uh, virtuoso uh, violinist. Well, I'm not sure. I think he might be American. Um, when I, I went online and put it on, I thought, oh, I've got to see this guy playing it. And all of a sudden, a caption come up on my computer, and there's only Steve Weiss standing by this, this famous uh, violinist. And they're talking about music. And I <laughs> thought, my God, what am I looking at? I thought I, I was gonna thought I was gonna listen, watch some guy going nuts on a violin. <laughs> so he played a bit on his violin, you know. And I thought, and he he looked rather strange to me, like he he, he was probably uh, some kind of professor. I didn't <laughs> quite catch his name, but I know st him and Steve I were good friends. That's so. And cool. uh, as you know, I mean Steve I, I mean. I mean, there's, what that guy don't know about playing guitar is, I don't, you know, I haven't seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. He's with, another one, you know. Yeah, when David Lee Roth first went solo and put together a, a Van Halen uh, type band in terms of stature of some of those players, I mean, there are a few people that could have that could have stood beside Roth in that era and yeah. in some ways kind of, you know, stepped into the, that Eddie position. Um, I, I want to, since we've been talking about Van Halen, I want to, of course, talk about In For The Kill and how, you know, a young Van Halen, when they were playing clubs, when they were doing covers, just like Budgie doing Zeppelin songs, they were doing Budgie. Yeah. And, and they were even, I yeah. believe, uh, from what I've read, they were even opening their sets with In For The Kill. Um, do you remember when you first became aware of of Van Halen and more specifically that Van Halen, you know, used to play budgie music <laughs> on stage? Um, I think I didn't hear about that until after I left the band, which was 79. And um, I was, um, I, I don't know, I can't, it's a bit hard to describe, but um, I'd heard of the bands, obviously, because I listened to the radio and you watch television and stuff, you know, and read music papers. I carried on with that side of it. And I carried on with my guitar and playing and whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I'd heard about um, uh, uh, Van Halen and um, somebody phoned me up and said, oh, they're, they're covering some of your, your, your material. And I thought, 
they're a massive band in America. Why would they? Why would they want to play budgy stuff? You know. And then I'd heard that they were, you know, doing albums and the, you know, and the guy on it. So I thought I'd go, go and have a listen. So I, I grabbed hold of their album. I think they'd been. I think it was that might have been they were doing their second album. But I had to listen to a couple of tracks on their first album. And when I heard him playing, I just, I just thought, oh my god, you know, I just that guy's he's just taking a leap. He's mm. he's gone. He's gone over, you know. He's seen something nobody else is doing. Mm-hmm. He's been fiddling around, you know. And um, the only time I ever saw that was we were playing in a club in Peoria. I can't remember the name of the club, but all I know is we, we went in there and um, there was a young kid in there who opened the doors for us. And it was a, a nightclub. It was a bit rough in there. They had a few pool, pool tables and that. And... Um, when I went in there, he, he said, oh, I'll let you in and bring the gear in. I said, OK. He said, I've just gone back to my room then. I said, oh, OK. So I didn't know where his room was. <laughs> anyway, he walked around. I could hear this guitar. I thought, what the hell? What's that? I thought, all I could hear was the guitar. He's, and he was playing some really wild stuff on it. And I thought, my God, he's good, whoever it is. So I went over and I tapped on his door. And the door opened. There's only this kid who let us in. He's mm-hmm. only a youngster, about 19. And I said, uh, I said... What are you doing? I said, you, you're practicing. You're in a band. You? No, he said, I'm, I, I'm still learning. He said, I, I'm not ready to, to get into a band yet, you know. Well, I said, all right. I said, well, um, how long have you been playing? He said, oh, about five years now. I said, well, I said, you're doing really well. I said, you really need to get into a band. I said, I'm just listening outside. Sounds really good what you're doing. And he said, yeah, no, he said, I, I'm not quite ready yet. He said, I, I want to get to a couple of years, you know. So I thought, I don't know who he is. But I know where he's going. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what are you to do with the club? Because he let us in. Yeah? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, he said, well, I look after the place. He said, I basically, I spend most of my time here to practically live here. He said, and all I do is play my guitar every day, about three, four hours a day. I said, how long have you been doing that? He said, oh, about three years now. Mm-hmm. I said, all oh, right. I said, and I thought to myself, it sounds like an old, you know. And I, I heard him playing and I thought to myself, I just heard somebody who's playing guitar far better than I can play, you know. And I, I felt like going in there and asking him, you know, do you fancy joining the band? You know? <laughs> just, sure? so I could, just so I could pick his brains, you know. Because <laughs> he was doing stuff on the guitar in there I'd never heard. And the only, that's the only time I'd ever heard anything like that. But when I heard um, Eddie Van Halen, and I just thought, wow, you know, that guy's so good, you know. And then when I heard Metallica, and I heard what the guitarists were playing, mm. and I thought, you know, they they've gone they've gone over as well. You know? Another leap. And you yeah. you recognise that, don't you? You know, you mm-hmm. know when you know when you you when you hear talent, it it don't just look at you; it stares you in the face and smacks you around the head a few times, you know? <laughs> and you think, bloody hell, I got to, I want some more of that. Yeah, and so, you, and you can feel those those cultural mile markers in the making i mean not that you know not that ever, not that anyone has a crystal ball but you get a sense like you said when you hear eddie van halen when you hear metallica uh the first time i heard nirvana you know you you can feel that there's something happening that it, while it's reminiscent of things that have come before it's it's about to break down a considerable door it was one of the first times i ever heard um 
Dave Evans, because he's one of my main influences when I first started to learn mm-hmm. to play guitar and that style of, and that sound, you know. Um, he was playing instrumentals. He was playing uh, the instrumentals live better than I'd heard on the record. Uh, he was that good. And I heard him playing other music as well. He covered a lot of ground, you know, musically. I don't think he ever wrote much himself, but um, doing cover versions of a second to none. But um, I'd, um, I, I can remember saying to Burke, you know, I can't understand uh, Dave Edmonds. I can't. And he said, what, what is there to understand? Well, I said, well, he's in a studio doing singles and stuff. I said, but it's not like he's into doing albums. I said, he's done that one blues album. I said, but... It's just sort of, it's a little bit dated, but uh, he's such a good guitarist. They said, it's, it's like he's not coming across. Um, not. I said, he should be up in London playing with the Beatles and <laughs> all the top musicians, I said, because he's that good. And then, lo and behold, about six or seven years later, that's exactly where he was. <laughs> he, he, was up there, he was up there mixing stuff with Paul McCartney and, you know, George Harrison. And yeah. They, they were... They, I saw them doing. Uh, I saw them doing a show, and they were. I think they were playing with Carl Perkins. He came over to do wow. a, a concert, a, a row of gigs, and um, and Dave Edmonds and uh, George Allison were sat there, and they were saying, uh, and one of them whispered to the other, "What's he on about? What's he going to do next?" And Dave Edmonds said, well, "I don't know. We'll wait and see what he says." We go. <laughs> Because he would just start something up, and they'd have to they'd have to back him. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He caught name a number, and they they just had to go I, with it. You, you know? know, I was just talking about this with um, with Dave Lombardo, I think, um, about Chuck Berry and mm-hmm. some of these guys. Where you know, I had a friend who was a promoter who did a festival that Chuck Berry performed at. This was maybe ten years ago, and Chuck Berry just shows up with his driver and waits in the car until it's set time and comes out and he expects the promoter to have hired a band who knows Chuck Berry songs without a set list. And he just gets on stage yeah. with his guitar and starts calling them out and you better be ready to play what, what Chuck wants you to play. I, I, there's that, those handful of, of cats who were able to command that over the years. Just, it's astounding. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you must have met some really, uh, really clever people over there on guitar. Some of the best, I should imagine. I've been very, very blessed in that in that sense for sure. It's nice. I, I love you. Keep reminding me of this. Is a very stop and smell the roses kind of conversation, <laughs> which I like. I needed it, so it's great. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about uh, you know, in for the kill, which which Van Halen did. That's the record, of course, that has Crash Course on it. Um, yeah. Do you remember anything in particular about that song coming together? Yeah, um, in for the kill. Um, basically, um, Burke and I were fiddling around with a couple of riffs, and um, we were trying to analyse what it was we were after. And um, uh, eventually, we nailed it down to playing as little notes as possible, and maybe sometimes as many as possible, but playing really down low on the guitar, you know, right down low. On the bass notes, um, on the bass guitar and on the on my guitar as well. Use all the bass notes right right down in in E or G, you know, open strings. And um, I thought, well, he came up with um, 
he came up with uh, a number called Guts. And it had a really simple riff of a four-note rundown, which basically, if you think of, uh, if you think of something like, say, Summertime, where they're playing a, like a little rundown on the guitar, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, like Steve Cropper might have done in Booker T, then, and if you think and it's sort of it's a bit like that you know you sort of I think Rob what's this what could I play you know I go and you pick up the guitar and you start playing it you know I was listening to oh we did some gig with a band called Osabisa, and they used to have three drummers, I think it was, on stage, and bongos and all sorts of drums they had on stage. And they start off, one of them start off a beat, then the other one would play an, an opposing beat that slid into it and matched mm-hmm. it. And then somebody else would play another beat, and all of a sudden, the whole stage is just rocking, and the whole place is going up and down, and everyone's jumping up and down with it, and the building's starting to cave in, and <laughs> just coming up the ceilings. You know. And I thought, my God, you know, the, the, and all I can remember is the way it was rolling along, you know, and it was that boom, 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 and I thought, oh, and I sat down one day, and we were at practice, just fiddling around, and I thought, nice low end bass notes, sound like drums, you know. And I go, no, ding, 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 I thought, ding, 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 And then I thought, no, no, four notes. And I thought, oh, yeah. So I started playing that. And then Burke joined in. And um, we just, we got locked into it. We couldn't get out of it. <laughs> I think we must have played it for about 10 minutes. It was so, it felt so powerful, you know. Ray just sat on his drums. And did a roll on his drums and bang, he was away straight away, right into it. And um, I think we, uh, we used to write stuff like that sometimes, you know. And Burke came to me one day and he said, uh, he said, I've got an idea for a song. He said, but I'm not sure what I want to do with this riff. And he did a... And I thought, I thought, well, yeah, I thought, yeah, I like that, Burke. I really like that. I said, we're gonna, gonna have to roll it right up and back down so we can keep it going, you know. And then it was, so we singing it and then we started trying to play it. Then we were away on that, you know. And again, that was sort of a, a riff that just comes out of, you know, what rhythm? Because I always think drums when I'm playing the guitar. If I'm playing the guitar mm. and I'm doing a run on the guitar, I think in terms of triplets or flam triplets, you know. You know, like a drum would do. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, it's, um, I mean, uh, when you think of all the best drummers, Buddy Rich, I loved him. I loved that guy. Because what I loved about him was I like drummers that play with the music. And they play the music. They don't put a concrete beat down and just say, oh, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, mm-hmm. ba, like a bloody machine, you know. It's a boom, ba, da, boom, ba, da, boom. Mm-hmm. And they got the bass drum going with the bass guitar and, and a snap on a snare and a ta-ting, ta-ting on the, the cymbal, you know. And they're really riding it. They will go in with the music and they all of a sudden you get locked in. And Ray could do that. That's what I loved about his drumming when I was with the band. Yeah, that's, that's that's why we wrote so many good riffs. I think 
Yeah. And he'd just play his drums, play it down, you know, and he'd just go with a swing. Um, basically, yeah, I mean, crash course in brain surgery. Yeah, yeah, that's so. That's so serendipity here too, because just a couple of days ago, I spoke with Chad Zamish, who is who's been James Hetfield's guitar tech for the last seventeen, eighteen years, and we were talking about Hetfield's particular style of rhythm playing. And Chad, who started started as a drummer and became a guitarist uh, before, you know, becoming a tech, um, he pointed out that uh, Hetfield thinks like a drummer because Hetfield also plays drums, and he, he sort of unlocked this key for me, you know, this this mystery of uh, his rhythm. Hetfield's rhythm playing is very percussive. It's almost mm. it's almost like it's the drum bits in a way. And uh, yeah, I think I, I that's love... why you like budgie, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can see that that tie-in. Um, that's super cool. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, and I know I can't keep you all evening, but um, I, I did want to talk about even some of the other artists who, uh, you know, Maiden, of course, that would have been the next budgie record, right? Um, the song that they did. Um, yeah. I can't see my feelings. What what was yeah. what was the relationship between Budgie and Maiden? Did you did you know those guys back in the day? No, we we hadn't played them. We'd heard about them, obviously, you know, because I mean, they're a really good band, excellent. And the next thing we heard was uh, they were doing a cover on one of our songs, and I mean, I just when I heard that they were doing that, I just sat back and I thought, I don't know, I'm I'm lost now. So I don't. I can't, it's like I'm trying to look at myself to see what I look like. You know, I, can't, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't picture what, why they would want to do that track, you know. And yeah. They obviously got a feel in it when they're messing around and they jam on it and thinking, you know, oh, yeah, we should do this song, you know. Yeah. It's, I, can, I can picture that because I used to get that when Burke and I were doing cover stuff and we'd listen to bands and you think, oh, we've got to do that, we got to. I've got to get on stage and play that. I've just got to get on stage and play that song. You know, that, you, you get it like that, you know what I mean? Because you, you're yeah. messing around with it and you get the feel of it. So I, yeah. I think that's why bands do do cover stuff. And it's it's more it's more a feel of their love for music. And uh, they'll pick on, up on something, you know. I mean, I, I listen to loads of, of things, you know, and then I go away and I fiddle around with them on my guitar, I think. Myself, oh God, I was, I would have loved to have been on stage playing that. <laughs> yeah, especially like some of the some of the Hendrix stuff, some of the Metallica stuff that they do. Um, Iron Maiden, I mean Black Sabbath, a few of the things that they did. You know, I just thought to myself, you know, oh, they got a groove there, they got a yeah. groove going. You know, yeah. I can imagine do, doing those sort of songs that you hear, and you just know they probably. They probably play that when they at practice. They probably play those songs for about ten or fifteen minutes because they don't want to stop. <laughs> I would imagine that was probably Soundgarden with "Homicidal Suicidal," which I actually I skipped over because that's way back on the first record. But um, do you remember the first time you you heard that Soundgarden had had done a budgie song? Uh, yeah, I'd heard about it, but I didn't actually hear the track. Um, I wanted to, but I didn't. Didn't didn't at the time. I didn't know where to go for it. It wasn't until somebody played it to me that I, I'd heard it for the first time. 
I mean, it's just so cool. And yeah, and like you said, there's something about that. You, you get a sense when these, the way Metallica in particular approaches the songs that they cover. You know, I mean, Garage Days was such a great name for that EP because you feel like you're hanging out in the garage. And like you said, yeah. like they're supposed to be working on their own songs, but somebody started playing, you know, a riff from well, a song. Well, it reminds me of when we were in a tin hut. You know, right. stuff, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Cup of tea and chocolate biscuit. It's marvelous what you could do. <laughs> um, and that brings us up all the way up to, I mean, there's, there's uh, so much more, but uh, Melt the Ice Away, that was done by Megadeth um, on their most recent album, which I guess their most recent album even was... 2016 so i guess four years ago but uh you know of course dave mustaine founding member of metallica kind of pioneered that style of playing guitar with with headfield before you know of course kirk had created exodus and there's so many as david elveson from megadeth said to me once uh we're all branches from the metallica tree and there's so many different branches that have, have sprung out yeah. uh but yeah uh, milk the ice away i wanted to ask you about um, that if you if you got a chance to hear that when that came out, if, if you were aware that yeah, that's something that we we were in Canada at the time when we wrote that, and we'd gone to practice and we needed some uh, we needed a couple of songs for the album that we were recording and um, Burke and I were fiddling around and I think it was um, it was Bread Fan as we were running it that we. And it's like you start singing or muttering things like that in your head to give you a little picture of what it is you're going to try and do, you know. So it's a bit, we picked up on that run, but we sort of made a bit more of it, more of it, and added a bit to it. And then did the the actual stop then on down something breaks into like the lead plane and I was trying to get it to sound like digital language. Yeah. You know you know when you hear a piece of digital language, you go <laughs> I was trying to make some sounds like that on my guitar, you know. I, so all the other guys are doing, I gotta go there. <laughs> That's so cool. Um I, I wanna t uh, two more things I definitely want to cover before we uh before we're done. Uh the first is um have you had occasion to meet the Metallica guys at, at any point over the years? Um, they did. Uh, they were doing a gig in, um, I think it was called the ICI. I think it was called in the middle of Cardiff, um, a quite a big venue, you know, quite mm -hmm. a very big venue. And they were playing there, and um, I can't remember. I, all I know is at the time I was ill, mm -hmm. and um, but Ray phoned me up and said that he was going down there to meet them, and he'd actually went down there uh, to meet them, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think I was dripping from the eyes and the nose and. Mm -hmm. Uh, my head felt like a steel bucket. And I, <laughs> I think I had flu or something, and I, a really bad case of it. I go, I can't go down there like this. If they catch this off me, they'll hang me. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, the next show's cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> well, that well, I could just imagine being in 
being at a gig and somebody walked in and go to shake your hand and their eyes are running and their nose is dripping. <laughs> I go, oh, you're too old, they're going, mate. I go, ugh, ugh. Oh, gosh, especially now. <laughs> Let alone then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I um, I didn't get the chance to meet them, but I I I wish I could have. I was uh, I felt a bit sad about that because I would have loved to have talked to them, you know, especially uh, James, you know. Yeah. I admired his, his style of his attack, his, his attitude towards you know music. Well, I feel like uh, I feel like that's in the cards. It seems like that's a conversation that's bound to happen someday. And then um, the last thing, yeah, I want to of course talk about Rocking Man with an axe to grind, um, putting that together, and uh, you know your, your son, who I got to meet momentarily, uh, was you know remastered. Um, you know, uh, the stuff from the digital releases and but tell me a bit about that project and sort of what made, what made now oh, the, the right time. To... It came about from uh, Chrissy Pike really with the, with the book he was writing mm -hmm. and uh, he was writing, asking me about the songs in the book and, and basically what we're talking about now, you know, what influences you, what makes you want to do that or think of playing something like that, you know. So I was trying to describe to him looking back, you know, the sort of things that you think about, the sort of things you want to do. And um, he said, well, look, Tony, he said, um, he said the, the albums that you did, Crank It Up and that, he said, and she had some of the songs on there, he said, they're, they're really nice. He said, I really like them. He said, um, he said, when I put the book out now, he said, it would be all right with you if, um, if we use, say, about seven or eight of the tracks. Mm. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, fine, you know. I said, actually, I got a couple of tracks that... Um, I've been messing around with recently um, that I've been writing and um, it took me a while to sort them out because um, I was playing keyboards and um, uh, I've got a drum machine but there's pads on there so I have to play them, mm -hmm. you know, with, yeah. with my yeah. fingers, you know. Yeah. And um, uh, what I was doing was I put a guitar track down, I put a click track down, put a guitar down, basic backing, you know. Then I play the drums to it, you know, and and get the roles in like if you know sometimes you you get some where you get backing tracks where they got the drumming going mm -hmm. all the time and then they add the roles yeah and it never sounds quite right you know? <laughs> yeah so what I was doing I thought I know I exactly what you mean yeah I gotta try and play the drums and play like I'm playing the drums like mm -hmm. live you know so I'm going boom bam boom bam boom bam boom bam boom bam so I'm playing like that, like I was a drummer. So, like, God knows what it would have been like if I'd have had a real set of drums there and probably <laughs> something horrific, you know. But I thought, all i got to do is think guitar. Right. Think guitar. Like think we were saying, yeah. Bass playing. So, as opposed to thinking drumming, when I was drumming, I'd be thinking a bird playing a bass. Boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam. And, and I sort of got through it like that and then did the rolls. And once I got that going, I thought, right, you know, now I can do it. So I was laying the tracks down, and then I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm, I can sing what, to write songs, but I'm not a brilliant singer. I'm, I'm just adequate. So I thought, I've got to have a go at these, these new tracks I've done. And I thought, you know, there's a couple of chorus things in there where it goes up a bit. I'm not a high singer, but I'm going to have to really stretch myself and blow my throat for a couple of hours even if I end up with Alan Jones for the week. You know? <laughs> so I managed to get through the songs and do that. So I said, I wrote back to Chris, you know, I said, look, 
I've got one there. It's called uh, Viking King. I said it's it's about um, it's about when the to me it's about when the Vikings first learned about um, you know using the North Star to direct themselves, and then coming across in the magnetic north and you know with bits of twigs or metal or whatever you know. And I said they they must have at some point in time like a guitar player learning to play a guitar. They learned to sail and they learned to do it really well. And they learned how to, uh, you know, plot themselves using the stars. And they must have got around, they certainly must have got around to the Mediterranean, I would have thought, as well as getting over to Britain. And uh, and had great fun, <laughs> as they did, marauding. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So I was thinking along those lines, I thought I could have, I could have a go at writing some lyrics about that, you know, and I thought, yeah, yeah the Viking king, you know. The Viking God, you know, so yeah. let's get down to the nitty gritty. You know, somebody was king, and they must have. It's not easy, you know, when you're a king or president or whoever in the world, and all of a sudden you've been given that throne to sit on, and you're answerable for it, you know. And I thought, well, there must have been a Viking king that he must have talked to his oppos and pieced things together, and thought, I got to show him the way. I got to. We got to get on this boat, and we got to go somewhere. I got to show them how to do it. I yeah. get, in other words, a good leader. <laughs> yeah, band Every boss. team has to have a good leader. I I just uh, binge watched um, over the holiday uh, a show called The Last Kingdom, which is it's you know it's about Danes yeah. Danes versus Saxons and yeah. you know the collision of Vikings and the the creation of England and yeah. all that. It's a good good film. Good film, Oh uh, yeah, super good. Um, so yeah, well, Did Tony. There was one one called the uh, the Bell. I don't know if you ever seen that with no. Richard Widmark in and Sidney Poitier. I'll have to check that. And, out. Uh, th- that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of them rowing, and I was thinking of them following the stars, and you know, being in storms and things. You know, and questioning. Somebody must have been questioning himself: Am I doing the right thing? Because they were going into the unknown, aren't they? Yeah, that's where they're going, and, yeah. and that's what it's like when you're in a band and you're you're on stage and you're playing. You're you're going into the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the, the audience are going to know. They're going to react. Yeah. You know, are you going the right way? Am I playing the right things? You know, they're going to like what we're doing. It's uh, it's newfounded territory. Yeah. <laughs> For all the top bands, all Metallica, Van Halen, all of them, they've all, they didn't just suddenly appear and thought, yeah, this is how we do it. They all start from somewhere. And, you know, and, and touring for a rock band is very Viking-like in the yeah. sense that you are charging into the unknown, as you said, and you're yeah. uh, you're hoping that there's plunder <laughs> to yeah. sustain you to the next destination. Uh, well, there must have been times when you were doing interviews and you sat back and thought, what am I going to ask them? You know, am I going to say, you know, I, go, I better start reading up on what they did. Or, you know, a lot of people might not see that, but I, I see that. Because I I know you didn't get where you are by sitting back and thinking, well, yeah, I know how to do this. Are you right? Uh, yeah, there's um. You know what I've found, honestly, my my biggest uh, trade secret. Whenever a, a colleague or, or anyone has asked me any kind of, um, whenever we talk shop, I guess, I find that establishing trust really early in the conversation makes for the best interview and, and, and by establishing trust i mean asking a few things from the outset that demonstrate you're informed about the person you're talking to 
because, uh, you know, you know, from having done interviews over the years, of course, uh, not every interviewer is prepared or, you know, or, or really has a, you know, and, and oftentimes they're busy or they're talking to a bunch of people that day or whatever the story is. But, uh, especially, uh, you know, having covered film, you know, when they're doing the press tours, promoting a movie, they're talking to any number of, of journalists from around the world of, of different, uh, mediums and outlets that know a little something or don't know anything, you know? And, uh, yeah, I always find that that's, uh, I mean, the, the first occasion that I had actually to interview anyone from Metallica was when I worked at MTV and I got to interview James and Kirk for a piece that we were doing about Johnny Cash actually. So, you know, on, on their day sheet for the show, it just said, you know, guy from MTV is going to be here to talk to you about Johnny Cash for half an hour. So me coming in, I think this was 2003 and sitting down with them. I just right from the outset somewhere in my first question, I managed to talk about Exodus and, uh, you know, and diamond head and budgie and anti nowhere league and all these bands. And I knew that they, you know, as a word, we're talking about Johnny Cash who I know has been a big influence on you guys, much like, diamond head much like budgie much like you know and it's like just sort of you see them kind of perk up a little bit like oh okay this guy knows a yeah, little, little something yeah, yeah. He, he's he's heard more than inner sandman he might he might have an interesting <laughs> conversation for us you know so yeah that that's um that's always the hope that that because uh, really you know people have asked me uh about difficult interviews or when things go wrong and, and knock on wood um I've been very lucky. I, I don't, you know, occasionally, you know, Damon Alburn from Blur never took his sunglasses off and, you know, let the guy next to him do most of the talking. But even that, I don't, I don't, I don't look at that and think, you know, oh, he was the worst person ever. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what was going on with him that day. Uh, he, he was polite, you know, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't uh, throw his drink at me or anything. Uh, yeah, I, I really haven't, I don't have any any horror stories, but I suppose I've also been careful about uh, who I'm interested in talking to. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you too. don't want somebody so real Lulu on there, especially if it's live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh God. Yeah, indeed. Um, but I will say it's a guilty pleasure. I, I do like watching YouTube videos of interviews gone wrong. There's some funny ones out there. <laughs> Yeah. And some repeat offenders. You see some of the same reporters oh, popping up, and it's like, well, why, is, why is that guy still getting this, these gigs? If it's always going so bad. <laughs> um, but, uh, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank Kingsley for me for, for helping us coordinate. Um, I'll be sure to let people know about the book and the music that comes with it. And um, we'd love to keep in touch and um, have you back on sometime and talk some more. There's so much more to talk Ryan, about. Did you did, I thought uh, Chrissy said you wanted me to play you a couple of riffs. I would, you, I, 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 I would love you to do that, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to impose. Well, um, I did bring up a guitar, so I could do that. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, he he mentioned it. I just didn't want to. Uh, I didn't I, want to go. Hey, I don't know what's. I don't know what it's going to come out like, you know, because of the yeah. mics and everything. But no, it should fine. be okay. No, it's great. But I'll just, uh, I'll just do um, Fred Pan and Crash Course. And you know what? This is only this has only been done for me one other time, and it was actually Dave Mustaine who did it Spont spontaneously. We were talking about something, and he he said, well, "Let me play it for you." And he got up and grabbed a guitar. Oh, hang on. 
That's not the overdrive sound I've got. Marshall it will go. That'll do, that'll do. <laughs> can you see me there? Uh, I right? can, indeed. Well, basically, uh, this is a guitar I built myself. That's mahogany. Oh, I beg your pardon. African mahogany. Um, all the best pickups on there. It's beautiful. Um, it's basically the four notes I was telling you about. Well, um, the, the, basically that one. And the, the, the other one, Crash Course, is just straight bass. Nine notes. Okay. <laughs> just such a good time. It just there. It just makes you feel a certain way. Uh, it's it's indescribable. Um, and getting the crackle and getting the uh, the hands of the guy who that that came out of in the first place, man. It's just and those songs are just so. Like I said, those are those are drive your car faster, uh, pick up your pace and your and your on the treadmill faster. Just fun. Uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to explain to people hard rock and metal what's so fun about it, and it's like, do I mean, you know, because it's thought of as as dark and menacing and mean and tough, and and it, of course it can be those things. But when you hear like those riffs, uh, or show somebody a clip of, you know, a hundred thousand people in Brazil singing a chorus to an Iron Maiden song, like that's fun. Well, Metallica, Metallica <laughs> yeah. when they did, um, when they did. Basically, it's just a, a few notes you put together in the right order with the right type of rhythm, and then when you stood there in front of a stack, <laughs> you're really laying into it, you know, and it drives along, you know. So it's uh, I can understand why they sort of tuned into that because some of the yeah. stuff that they do has got a similar sort of feel. Absolutely. Yeah, you know? and that's what it's all about. Basically, it's just having fun on your guitar and laying into it. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Sometimes you, um, I, I pick up and write riffs on acoustic guitar. And they sound terrible playing on acoustic guitar. Once you plug in and you really lay into them, you know they're going to sound good. But that's kind of like the thing you said about if you can if you can sing a riff, right? If, yeah. if it works on an acoustic guitar, then you know it's going to work. <laughs> the, yeah. With the real deal setup. Yeah. Amazing. That that what what a treat! I I can't tell you what a pleasure this has been. Um, I was looking forward to it, and then it succeeded expectations. Even. Um, this is this is one of the, definitely one of those moments where I remind myself like. Oh, this is what this is what I've carved out to do for a living. It's pretty damn cool. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I'm a great fan, so <laughs> thank you. Well, yeah. <laughs> um ah, so great. Um well be safe over there. Uh thanks again for making this happen. We'll we'll definitely stay in touch. And um yeah. I'll let you guys know when the episode's going up. I actually have a little I'm actually ahead for once, so uh, it'll be a, a a little bit, but I'll let you guys know when it's up. Well, you take care over there, you and your family and all, and stay safe. Likewise.
Thanks yeah. so much. Great talking to you, Ryan. It's so great. Cheers. Yeah, for me and the boys, Toronto. Oh, yeah. <laughs>